two key scriptures this morning. Uh, the title of today's message is going to be Life, Love, and the Pursuit of God's Will. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It's one of our key scriptures. I'll be reading out of the King James Version this morning. 2 Peter 3 and 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Everybody say willing. willing. Where it says willing, it's talking about God's will. So the King James, it says that he's not willing that any should perish. In a more modern day English, you would say that it is God's will that all should be saved. Or that it is God's will that none should perish. But that all should come to the knowledge of repentance. Keep that in mind. Romans chapter 8, verse number 27, our other key scripture today. Romans 8, 27 says, And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Everybody say the will of God. In verse 28, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to those that are called according to His purpose. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We pray that it would be anointed and that it would do uh, much work inside of us. Father, break chains. Break bondages this morning, set us free, and uh, give us insight and let our faith rise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 2 Peter chapter 3 and Romans chapter 8. So there's an interesting notion uh, among Christians, or among uh, theologians maybe, or among pastors, even among teachers in the Christian faith. There are some unique notions about God's will. I really want to uh, get to sort of the bottom of this. It's a lofty title, Life love and the pursuit of God's will. You, of course, you can't cover all three of those subjects in one sermon. You can't even cover one of them. So we're just, we're just brushing the surface. Uh, but I do believe it's for a purpose. And uh, I do believe we, we, can, we can walk away with a better understanding of what God's will is. And that's a very important thing to understand. Amen? Amen. So if you believe that there is a God, then you'd want to know what does He want from you, yes? Amen. What does He want from us? There are so many confused people and so many confused Christians walking around the face of this planet. And I found it interesting to find out that one of the main reasons why so many Christians are confused is because of the teaching or lack thereof that comes from so many of the pulpits. Ted, uh, one of our, our leaders who's working on the computer, the graphics this morning, Ted posted an interesting post on Facebook this week. How many of you saw that? Yeah, it was interesting. I was actually um, astonished at the maturity because Ted said, I just want you to list these things and not talk about it. I've tried that before and it did not work. So I was, uh, I was glad it worked out for Ted. But he said, I just want you to list what you think are the most misunderstood things, uh, teachings or whatever in the Christian faith. And he was doing it for a purpose. And a lot of good, a lot of good responses. And my response was um, the depth that's available in the word of God yet the simplicity of its plan. So, is there depth to the Word of God? A lot, of, a lot of Christians never get the opportunity to even go knee-deep into the waters of what's available in God's Word. And there are waters to drown in. There's a lot available in that Word. But he did not decide that he wanted to make the road to salvation difficult. In fact, he said that he is not the author of confusion. He didn't make it confusing. He didn't make it difficult. He made it simple. Some educators have said that the Bible, its ideals, and uh, I guess you would say the, the availability of the knowledge therein is, is beyond compare. Uh, at the same time, it's literally on the surface written on a fourth grade level. You don't, it's harder to see that in the King James, obviously, but in a, in a more modern day translation, that it's written on that level where a young child could read it and not, not necessarily be able to teach you something about every scripture, but walk away with a general theme, an idea of what, who Jesus is, what he did, and how we're saved, all the important stuff. It's not that difficult. We talked about it on Wednesday night. Romans chapter 10 lays it out very well. Acts chapter 2 lays it out very well. He didn't make the plan that difficult. We make it difficult. 
but he did give us a deep word at the same time. So what I want to try to clear up this morning, or at least make an attempt, is uh, God's, God's will and what that means for us. Life, we're all living it. Life is a funny thing. Some lives are considered successful, and some lives are considered failures. I was writing this sermon, and I thought, you know, that I knew I could feel something about this. Was I didn't know what I was going to end up writing, but I could feel going this direction. And the question just surfaced. Have you ever wondered why? Have you ever asked why? What makes a life successful and what makes a life a failure? Everybody say, I'm alive. I'm alive. Okay, that means you have two options, to succeed or fail. You're going to do one of those two things by the end of your life, and there is no reason why, if you're walking with the Lord, or at least striving, that you should end up a failure. Because it's not that difficult. We make it that difficult. A lot of people end up failures because it's so convoluted, the path to successful life with God. But we're, we are the convolution. God didn't uh, put that in there. One can observe a life in a current state of disarray and decide that it is a failure. And on the flip side, a person can observe a life being lived well or well put together and decide that uh, it is a, is a success. You hear it all the time. What a successful man. What a successful woman. And conversely, what a loser or what a failure. People say that about people all the time. I want to propose this morning a simple fact that contradicts such lighthearted judgments. You, no matter who you are, I can guarantee you, you have never observed a successful man or a successful woman, and you have never observed a failure. And that includes when you look in the mirror. How do I know that for sure? Because success and failure are not things that can be observed in the present. They are only things that can be observed through the looking glass of history, if you will. A life or a person can never be labeled a success or a failure based on anything less than the sum total of their entire effort. And that effort, as the word says, as people say, rather, ain't over till it's over. Hebrews 13, verse 5, says, Let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thank you, Lord. Verse six, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do to me. Everybody say he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Listen, if you're a person that gets agitated about showing up to church and hearing about failure and success and emotion and you leave going, what about Jesus? I'm with you. All right. We're going to learn about Jesus this morning. But Jesus came to teach us a lot about ourselves. So we're going to be introspective a little bit this morning. And we're going to walk away with a deeper knowledge of who he is in us and who we are in him. Is that all right? Amen. All right. So I'm not losing track. I'm not trying to motivate, uh, motivate you to be a, to be a champion, although that'd be great. But I'm trying to display the word of God in a way in which it can be simplified and we can learn how to walk a successful, a successful Christian walk with the Lord. So stick with me this morning. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. What does that mean for me and you? That means you probably have a longer list of mistakes and screw ups. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that from the pulpit, but. I say it not from the pulpit, so might as well. You have a longer list of those things and a longer list of bad judgments than you probably have of correct judgments or correct decisions. You probably have a laundry list of mistakes. You probably have a chorus of people that can point at you and tell you where you fell short, when you messed up, how you didn't do something right. That's what parents are for. Just kidding. Until you reach a certain age. Now, my parents are all encouraging. Amen. Amen. <laughs> but uh, as you're growing up, that's, yeah. I mean, think about your years as a teenager. And I'm sure there's even people in your life now, husband, wife, I hope not, that tell you um, every time you mess up. And that's how you learn. But we look at people, you look at the homeless guy on the street. We're going out to the homeless people on the street here pretty soon. 
They ran us away from the bridge, so we're going to a field. Pretty soon they'll run us away from the field. Pretty soon it'll just be church wherever. Just show up here, we're going to ride out somewhere, I don't know where it's going to be. Wherever the cops are not, apparently. So that's what America's coming to. So here we go, we're going to see all these people, and it's going to be hard for you to look at each and every homeless person that walks up into that congregation, that meeting, and not think to yourself, what a wasted life, what a failure, what a sad story. I mean, there are nicer Christian ways to, to call somebody a failure than to just say they're a loser or a failure, but we have our ways of doing that. But you look at, you're going to look at them, it's going to be hard because of where they're at now. But Hebrews 13 says that God has not left them. And God will never forsake them. You know what that means for me and you? That means it's never too late. It's never too late. I don't know what callings you formerly thought you had on your life that you've decided you don't have anymore, but God has not left you and God will not forsake you. I don't know what dreams and visions you at one time had and you have convinced yourself that you are too old or it's been too long or you're in the wrong place. God has not left you and God will not forsake you. Will Smith was in that movie. I can't remember the guy's name in real life. The Pursuit of Happiness. That was a homeless guy that at one point you would have looked at and said, what a failure. Now we would all love to have that level of success. So when he dies, what are they going to call him? A failure or a success? I used Abraham Lincoln as an example. Based on his past record of failures, Abraham Lincoln had no right to think that he could win the presidency of the United States, but that didn't keep him from trying. He failed in business at age 21. He was defeated in legislative race at 22. He failed in his business again at 24. He overcame the death of his sweetheart at age 26, which basically put him into a depression. He had a nervous breakdown at age 27. He lost a congressional race at age 34. He lost another congressional race at age 36. He lost a senatorial race at age 45. And he failed in an effort to become vice president at age 47 and lost his subsequent senatorial race at age 47 as well. All he ever did in politics was lose. So in many ways, Lincoln was a successful man by the time he was elected president, and, but not in the ways that he wanted. By age 52, he was politically speaking a failure and would have been called such until one day and then never again. So for a long time, people thought they were observing a political failure. Through the looking glass of history, we see a political juggernaut. One of the most idolized, amazing presidents to come across the face of this free, powerful country, leading country in the world. That's pretty successful. Philippians 3, chapter 13 says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Everybody say, I press. All right, so according to those examples, you are not currently a failure and you are not currently a success in life, in love, in business, in anything in this world or anything beyond this world. You are a work in progress. Everybody say, I press. That's the key word, progress. It seems to me that we all make mistakes. We make more mistakes than we make right choices, as we've already talked about. There is actually a quote that I think rings very true that's been around for a long time. It says that good judgment comes through experience and most of that comes through bad judgment. There's a point to that. So personally, I find it a bit more than funny. Everybody say God's will. That mere men, once endowed with the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, mere mortal men, once they become Christians and begin to walk in whatever it is that they walk in, in Christianity, have decided... That there is a way to walk in God's perfect will as opposed to his permissive will. How many of you have ever heard that argument? God has a perfect will and God has a permissive will. You ever heard that before? So somebody who, uh, who allows themselves, I guess, to kind of sit in the seat of judgment can tell you that you're doing okay. 
Um, you're not walking in God's perfect will because of A, B, C, and D, but you're walking in his permissive will. In other words, God is sitting up in heaven going, I have a, a perfect plan for this gentleman or this lady, but since they are not walking in that perfect will, I will permit them to live anyway and still be their God, still be their Lord and their Savior, my permissive will. You won't find those terms in the Bible, but men speak about these terms. It's so funny because if history has taught us anything by way of experience and judgment, good and bad, it's that life is a culmination of mistakes. Have you ever thought about that? Your entire life is a culmination of the mistakes that you have made. Sometimes you make right choices. More often than not, you make mistakes. You learn from those mistakes and your judgment becomes better and you can make more right choices. But it doesn't change the fact that you made a lot of mistakes. And that's part of your testimony. That's a big part of who you are. The world wants to convince you. And the sadder part is that the church wants to convince you. The more riddled your life is with mistakes, the more off the mark you are and the further away you are from God's perfect will. And you'd be lucky to walk in his permissive will because you can't ever do anything right. But God says, I have never left you. And I've never forsaken you. We have pet sins in Christianity that are so easy to forgive. We like to hear about these sins in testimonies. How somebody was such a heavy drinker. Those are the those are fun stories. The beer bongs and the shotguns and the liquor and the mix and the crazy. Oh, and we talk, we, act, you know, we act like we're so sorry we did these things, but we're telling a grand story. Man, I used to. Oh, my God. You're nobody better drink as much as I did. Crazy. <laughs> I was such a sinner. So, you know, and you have your stories of what you did is crazy. We don't mind that as Christians. We're like, praise God. What a testimony that God delivered him out of the grips of alcohol. Drugs. In fact, there's not a whole lot that we mind about people being delivered from before they were saved. But if they deal with certain things after they get saved, all of a sudden the power of God to forgive has taken an ugly turn. You know, we still don't mind hearing about second chances for people that got back into alcohol and God delivered them again. That's still a pretty good testimony. Second chances with drug addiction or there's a there's a few. There's a little list. But then there's some that we just don't have any tolerance for. After I became a Christian, served God for 15 years and my marriage ended in divorce. It's not God's plan. God's not uh, happy with divorce. God's not his place. He doesn't want people to get divorced. But he's never left you. And he will never forsake you. Amen. And that is not the unforgivable sin. And God issued a declaration of divorce to Israel in the Old Testament. He didn't want to do that either. And I'm not, this isn't a message about divorce, but that's just one of those things that all of a sudden there's no forgiveness for after you become a Christian. There's other things, um, but because it's not really the point of the sermon, I just want to make that, we'll just use that one example. His perfect will and his permissive will. It's so funny because, again, if we look back at history and try to learn a lesson that life is a culmination of mistakes, a mixed bag of fortunate and unfortunate and poor decisions that ride on the wings of the butterfly effect, if you will, of other people's bad decisions, we're all in this mixed bag together, and sometimes it's easy to get lost. We are not, however, hopelessly lost at sea. We have one tool at our disposal, one lifeline that's attached directly to the rudder of this infinite vessel, if you will. One lifeline. How many of you have ever felt like your life is just crazy, out of control? You're going through things, you're subject to things you have no control over. It's based on things that other people did, and you're not sure how to react as a Christian, you're not sure what you should do or what you shouldn't do. Your life was great. If, you're, if your life is great now, give it a few months, and you might find yourself in the middle of a, of a, of a similar situation. Well, I didn't know he was going to do that, or she was going to do that, or they were going to say that, or they were going to go there. Now I have to do A, B, C, and D. How do I maintain my Christianity? How do I maintain the will of God in my life? Here I haven't even figured out God's perfect will versus permissive will. Now I'm just trying to survive. I don't have time to figure that out, but I want to be in his will. How do I get there? Well, it needs to be a little bit more simple. That one tool, if you will, is 
reactions. Everybody say reactions. It has been said and it is true that we cannot and we do not have any control over other people's actions. Zero. You have influence. You can, but you cannot ultimately have control. What you do have 110% control over is your reaction to their action. This is going to come full circle. We're going to learn something today. Matthew 5, 44, chapter 5, verse 44, talks about reactions. I say unto you, fight your enemies, do evil to those that curse you, and repay those that hate you. And do not pray for anybody that uses you or persecutes you. And that's what we would say as human beings. That could be considered a proper reaction to somebody that treats you that way. That, however, is not God's will, perfect or permissive. So how do we find our way out of this mixed bag? How do we find our way out of our own mistakes? Compounded by other people's mistakes, our wrong decisions multiplied by their wrong decisions. How do we maintain a life that is lived in God's will? Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 says, I say unto you, love your enemies. That's a crazy reaction. You can't control who's going to be your enemy and who's not. Because hopefully you're not out there making enemies. But that doesn't mean somebody's not going to make an enemy out of you. Can't control that. You can control how you react. Bless those that curse you. It's quite a reaction. Do good to those that hate you. That is very difficult. Let's just admit it. We don't mind the bless those that curse you part because we're not even really sure what a curse is. We're like, that sounds good to me. It's fine. (laughs) When it comes down to doing good to those that hate you, dear Lord, there'd be a lot less divorces if we did that. Pray for those which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's quite a reaction. These things are all defining one aspect of God that we're going to get to. Uh, We have the ability, by controlling our reactions to whatever extent we can, to turn unfortunate events and unfortunate decisions into fortunate things. We can turn mistakes into solutions. We can turn failures into success. Righteous reactions can and will spur the momentum of our aforementioned keyword, which was progress. Everybody say, I press. When Paul said, I press toward that high mark and that calling in Christ Jesus, that's what he's saying. Progress. How do you define a Christian walk? I don't. It doesn't matter where you're at. I don't know what level you're at. God knows what level you're at. But I'm not even sure that he necessarily cares what level you're at. He cares, are you moving? You know when he said, I wish that you were hot or cold. But since you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know what's interesting about that? Pastors have tried to figure that out for decades. God would rather you be completely lost in the world or completely into church rather than caught in the middle. He'll spew you out. God would rather you be completely lost in the world. God just doesn't sound quite right. (laughs) Then I realized something about water the first time I went to float the Guadalupe or the Frio. (laughs) Running water is always one of two things, hot or cold. It It can be cold and still be very good water. And there are hot springs and there are geysers and they're, and they're going to be hot. It's only stagnant water that, is lukewarm. So God's saying, I don't care if you're moving uphill or downhill. In fact, to be in a literal sense, because he's speaking about the temple and in the book of Revelation at that point, what he's saying is, I don't care if you're working outside on the wall where it's cold or inside by the fire where it's hot. But if you're just standing around doing nothing, that's no good. God wants Progress. Everybody say, I press. There are, as we call this, an infinite vessel, a few enemies on this ship. However, because all of this can sound maybe simple enough once you kind of put it in perspective. 
You can control your reactions. You can control a whole, but there, it's not. It's easier said than done. There are many enemies, but I want to talk about two in particular this morning. These were, were on my heart. The first one is a word you probably don't hear a lot about called dogma. Dogma basically is defined as a a principle or a set of principles that are laid down by an authority as incontrovertible. In other words, and of course we're speaking from a Christian perspective, so it's a, it's a defining theology within the church that somebody in high authority has decided, I don't care what you end up studying, I don't care what God tells you, I don't care what you think you discover, we said it's this way and that cannot be changed. Incontrovertible principles. That's okay when you're talking about a few things in the Bible that the Bible says are incontrovertible. The blood of Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the virgin birth, things of this nature. But the church doesn't stop there. Churches go well beyond that and lay down additional dogmas. One of these dogmas or many of these dogmas have to have a concern with God's will in your life. As we talked about the dogma of his perfect and his permissive will. But this is any type of legalistic attitude. Dogma requires you to stay put, period. Everybody say lukewarm. Dogma declares you can't go left or right. This is how it is. And this is never going to change. You're either in his perfect will or his permissive will. Dogma stands firm and unmovable in the face of reason. Dogma gets lost in that mixed bag of bad decisions and right decisions and never finds its way out. Dogma, once embraced, bears the fruit of religion. And we are not about religion within Christianity. We are labeled by the world as a religion But we are not about religion. We are about freedom. Yes? We are about freedom. We are about the Spirit of God. We are about relationship. Amen? We're not about religion. But dogma, once it's embraced, bears the fruit of religion. And religion kills liberty. And the Bible says we have liberty in Christ. See who the Son sets free is free indeed. Everybody say, I'm free. It's funny because a quote I remembered about liberty is when Goodwill Hunting is defending himself, Matt Damon, of course, playing his character. And he says to uh, the defending lawyer that liberty, might I remind you, is the soul's right to breathe. And without it, man becomes a cinco. And the judge says, a what? And he says, an ibid, your honor. Anyway, it's, it's funny because he's talking about liberty being the soul's right to breathe. And in 1999, he starred in a not very successful movie called Dogma. So it's funny. I thought, Dogma is not your friend. Dogma preaches an attainable, perfect will of God. Listen to that real quick. Dogma preaches an attainable, perfect will of God. Okay, if there's a perfect will of God and a permissive will of God, then there is the ability to walk either in the perfect will of God or the permissive will of God, which is more than a little ironic Because it it preaches an attainable, perfect will of God in a world full of faithful people that are riddled with mistakes and rife with the ability to be wrong. How can we preach a perfect will to people like ourselves? How can we ever reach that? How can we ever attain that? You see where the condemnation comes in? Most of the time it works out that the pastor and maybe the assistant pastors and maybe the worship pastor... And some of the leadership are walking in the perfect will of God. Because here they are, up front, being used by God, so to speak. And the real message behind the message is that everybody else is just in the permissive will of God. You're just lucky to be here. We're going to pass the bucket again. Because you you're really just lucky to be here. That's the message behind the message. When somebody's preaching to you the perfect will of God, the permissive will, they might not have even realized it themselves. But there's such thing as getting honest with yourself. And when you're honest with yourself and you look past that, that's what's behind that message. There might be a few people in the congregation that have a ministry. So they could say they're in the perfect will of God. Then that's what it comes down to, whether you have a ministry or not. Then you're in the permissive. That's junk. I guarantee you, I'm a pastor. And I am far, far from perfect. If there's a such thing as God's perfect will, I am not in it. I make way too many mistakes. 
Wait, I don't even know if I'm supposed to preach this sermon today. This is just my best guess. So there's no, I don't understand that concept. And I don't see that concept in the word of God. There is no perfect or permissive will of God. There is just his will. Did you hear that? There's no perfect or permissive will of God. There is just his will and you are either in it or you are not. Your mistakes and your bad decisions will not get you kicked out. Your reaction to those mistakes might. But God knew that he was dealing with an imperfect people. He said he looked all across the earth and he couldn't find one that was worthy. But he said all fall short. Of the glory of God. Everybody say all. All. That's you. We're going to talk about a lot of alls today. Okay. All fall short of the glory of God. And one of our key scriptures says. All things work to good. For those that love God and are called to his purpose. Is there a connection there? All fall short of the glory. All things work to good. God has a way of dealing with all. He can turn the all that falls completely short into an all that is always good. Right? He has that ability. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. We're talking about dogma. says, beware lest any man spoils you through the philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Mark 7.13 says, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which you have delivered in many such like things you do. Christ had a lot to say about dogmatic attitudes. Because what dogma turns into as religion is tradition. And when you stand on a dogma, you build a tradition. Christ said, I don't like any of your traditions. Actually, he said before he died, I'm doing away with all traditions, except for one, that on the Passover you take this meal. The blood and the body of Christ, a communion. That's the only tradition that he let stand. He did not, as a sidebar, say that when you take that bread, it is going to become my actual body. And when you drink that grape juice or wine or whatever, it's going to become my actual blood, as some denominations say. There's a word for that. I can't remember what it is at the moment. Our other enemy, number two. Everybody say number two. Our other enemy is emotion. (laughs) Sorry, I thought about Austin Powers when y'all did it. Our other enemy is, (laughs) I couldn't help it. I know I shouldn't have said that. Our other enemy is emotion. Emotions were, (laughs) y'all stop. Emotions were given to us by God, but it turns out we like them way too much. This is a serious, this is a serious issue. So if you, if you're not given to dogma, then there's a good chance that you're given to emotion. And I'm not telling you that that's your fault or that you're less than. You're a human being. We deal with stuff. God gave us emotions and emotions are good. But sometimes we like them a little too much. I personally, and I don't know if you agree with me. I don't find that there's anything more, more beautiful on the face of the earth than pure human emotion on display in an honest, heartfelt, almost uncontrollable way. It's why we like movies. It's why we like plays it's why we like music there's something about raw human emotion when it's honest that's very beautiful and god created that way think about the emotion on a new father or a new mother's face the first time they have a child or any time they have a brand new baby that's awesome think about the anguish and the emotion that was on the face of jesus christ when he knelt down in the garden of gethsemane Talking to his father in heaven, understanding the depth of his sacrifice, saying, if there's any way to take this cup from me, take it. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Imagine the emotion in his face and in his spirit when he looked at Jerusalem and he said, how often I would have gathered you like a mother hand gathering her chicks. But you would not. That's you watch the passion of the Christ. It's the human emotion 
It's amazing. It's an amazing and beautiful thing. When done correctly. It's when we are overtaken by our emotions. Everybody say reactions. When our emotions cease to become reasonable reactions and start to demand reactions of their own, that's when they have the ability to ruin the day. Do you understand what that means? Emotions were given to us as reactions to things. But sometimes we fall in love with those emotions. You've all met people, you all know people that are drawn to sadness, that are drawn to despair, that couldn't function if they weren't depressed, that somehow you, you don't, you've never known quite how to describe it. Is it the fact that you think that brings you attention? Is that why you act like that? Is it, what is it? And we can't put our finger on it, but you've all felt it. It's just that a lot of us have overcome it and said, I'm not going to give in to that. But some people have given into it and they live that way. We have a whole group of people these days called emos. Emo groups of people. They're not bad people. Emo stands for emotion. That's what they've labeled themselves as emotional. They look different. They wear different things. They act different. They're really into tattoos and dark makeup and light skin and, and different kinds of clothing. And it doesn't make them bad. Some of that stuff has filtered into fashion and actually is pretty cool. But then some of it is, is drawn way too deep and way too far. And it's a display of, a, of, a, of an addiction to emotion. We're no longer have their emotions become reasonable reactions, which is what they're supposed to be. You cry when somebody that you know gets hurt. You laugh and you shout and you feel good when somebody that you know gets a promotion or victory. It's reasonable and it's beautiful. It's when you become addicted to those emotions and instead of becoming reactions, they demand reactions of their own. Now other people are having to react to your emotions because you couldn't keep your emotions under control. So now we have to do something about that. Now you have to do something about that. Now you've created a situation. You have to make a decision that before you wouldn't have had to make if you would have just let your emotions be reasonable. Don't bottle them up. Don't, don't bottle them up and pretend like they're not there. But don't let them rule you is the thing. That can take away your ability to find God's will in your life because it can take away your ability to have proper reactions to mistakes or bad decisions, which can take away God's ability to make all things work for good because you're not willing to work in all things. You've lost sight of all things because you're emotionally driven, you're dogmatically driven, you're religiously driven instead of being open and free. Does that make sense? The person that never makes an emotional decision never makes a decision. Emotions should be involved in decisions, but decisions should not be based solely on emotions. Save one. And this to me is a deeper concept. It's going to sound very light. But it's very deep. And that's uh, essential and that's apropos because we're talking about the word of God, which we've already declared is very light, but very deep at the same time. It's one emotion that holds a trump card to all of that, and that's love. True, pure love. Everybody say, God, God is, is love. love. That's scripture. That's what the Bible says. So here's the thing. There's a whole gamut of human emotions. None of them should rule you. None of them should make your decisions for you. None of them should cause other people to have to make decisions Except for love. But that's so incredibly hard to walk in. What the Lord put on my heart is that you show me a man or a woman that knows how to love perfectly. And I will show you a man or a woman that has never made a mistake. And truly walks in God's perfect will if there is such a thing. It doesn't matter what happens in any given situation if you react in love? We're so unwilling to because we don't so want somebody getting the better of us. We preach, and I've preached, and I'll probably continue to say from time to time, that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're a doormat. People don't get to walk all over you. And that's true, and I say that because I operate that way, and I think you have to operate that way because I don't know how to love perfectly, and I don't think you do either. I could be wrong about that. But if you do know how to love perfectly or you want to try to get there, you don't ever worry about being a doormat. People can walk all over you all day and you can love those people. I, I'm not saying I can, but you could. He said, love your enemies, 
Pray for those that despitefully use you. Do good to those that hate you. You might not tell your son or daughter to act that way. You might not tell your friends or your family that they should act that way because you don't want them taken advantage of. You don't want them treated that way. But you all know deep down in the bottom of your heart that if everybody just loved everybody, despite how bad they used them, despite how bad they treated them, if they reacted in love, it might not turn out with the advantage being on their side, but it would be perfect. It would be unmistakable. And somehow it would be blessed by God. Because God is love. Amen. Amen. That's the trump card. That's what I wish we all knew how to do better. I think there are two things that would bring about the return of Christ. The Bible says one of them is going to end up doing it. The two things are incredible, ultimate, undeniable destruction past the point of no return, which the Bible says that's what's going to ultimately do it. He's going to come back before we completely destroy everything, like right before. The other thing would be if we all learned how to love each other. If the world operated in perfect love the way that Christ laid it down, he'd have no other choice but to come back. Well, it's all, it's all done. There's no reason to have them do anything else. Look at them. It doesn't matter what they do. They punch each other in the face and just love each other. It's awesome, except for the guy that did the punching. So we always have people to work on. But if we did, I don't know. I don't know how to get this idea across, so let's just move on. Um, where are we at? Well, I said, show me a man that loves perfectly. I'll show you a man that makes no mistakes. And of course, there's only ever been one. So how do we control our emotions? Big question. How do we control our emotions? Are you still remembering why this is important? We're talking about God's will, life, love, and the pursuit of God's will. You with me? How do we control our emotions? And the answer is we don't. Emotions live in some oscillating universe that emanates from both your soul and your spirit. In other words, what I'm saying is emotions are born out of your soul, but they're also born out of your spirit. It's like this weird combination where your soul and your spirit kind of meet. And this is where emotions come from. But they're not displayed in the soul and they're not displayed in the spirit. They're always displayed in the flesh. So they have this weird, uh, this weird vocabulary definition of being present in all three parts of your being. And I'm sorry if you're not familiar with those three parts. But the Bible says you're a triune being, body, soul, and spirit. Just like God is triune, Father, God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. He said, let us make man in our image. We have three parts. He has three parts, so on and so forth. Point being, your soul and your spirit are not the same thing. They're separate things. A lot of people don't understand that. Your soul will live forever. Your soul, that was tongues. And what I said was, your soul will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. And your spirit is what will elevate your soul to live, or God's spirit to live in heaven. So anyway, um, that's not the teaching. But what I want to say is there's intersection of soul and spirit where emotions are born and they're displayed in your flesh. So there's only one possible way that we can control these things, and that's to give everything over to the one source of control, the only thing that has authority over body, soul, and spirit at the same time. And that one thing, that one source, that one being is God Almighty, the creator of all things. So the only way that we're able to walk in God's will, in other words, this is a long story to come back to one point. If you want to walk in God's perfect will, you have to take that will that he gave you. Remember, he said, I am willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know what that means? Salvation is for whosoever will. You know what that means? That means we were not predestined to go to heaven or to go to hell. That means we were born with a choice of whether we were going to serve God or not serve God. It says those that he foreknew he predestined. In other words, he knew the choices you were going to make before he put a destiny on your life. He didn't create you to go to heaven or hell. You get to make choices. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the thing. We talk about how God is such a loving God because he gave us free will. And we, we cling to that free will. We love that free will. We talk about that free will. It defines us as who we are as Christians. God's free will. Here's the catch 22. If you want to walk in his will, you have to take your free will and give it back to him. Then you start walking in what we would call a predestined life. We would call that because 
God set that destiny down before you were born. You still have to run into it. You have to take your free will and give it back to him and no longer worry about operating under your own free will, but try to operate according to what he wants you to do. Which makes it awkward when you tell people that you have free will. Because on one hand, the beautiful thing about God is that he gave you free will. On the other hand, the beautiful thing about you is that you gave it back. That's how God keeps heaven perfect. You can't let anybody in there that has a will of their own. They'll screw it up. So uh, how does he let us in? Well, only those that gave their will back to him get in. Unfortunately, after we give that will back, we still live in a world where we're tempted with sin. So we're not ever going to be perfect here. But once we get out of this stinking flesh and blood body and get into our glorified body, as the, as, the, as the word calls it, and we are people that have given our will back to God, we'll have no problems. That's why there won't be any sin. Does that make sense? Amen. Maybe this is why Matthew 22, verse 37 is followed by verse 39, or you can look at it in Mark chapter 12, 29 and 30, where it says to love the Lord your God. Everybody say emotions to love. I didn't mean for you to say that, but good job. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Mark says all of your strength, all of your being is followed by verse 39. That Once you love God with everything, in other words, you've given God everything, you've relinquished control, and God has come to live in your heart, then you can perform first verse 39, which says love your neighbor as yourself. That's emotion under control. You might all have good relationships with your neighbors, and I hope you do. Do you love your neighbor like you love yourself? It's a serious question. How many of you are really cold? See people. Okay, only not even half the room. Sorry. Okay. So we move on. Then you can love your neighbor once your emotions are under control. Because once we give ourselves and our emotions over to God by relinquishing control of our hearts, we can then be controlled enough to love our neighbor. Amen. Once emotions are under control, progress can ensue. Everybody say, I press. Go ahead and get our uh, worship team back up this morning. I'm going to end with this thought. Let go of your dogma. Relinquish control of yourself to the Spirit of God. Accept yourself along with all of your mistakes all of your poor judgments, past and future, fortunate and unfortunate, realize that God is never deterred. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And He can make a successful life out of your blunders and missed opportunities. His favor will find your way out of that mixed bag that we talked about and on the road to happiness. Then maybe when we do all of this, we can look back and know that Romans chapter 8 was right all along. All things really do work to good for those that love God and are called to his purpose. Notice it doesn't say his perfect purpose, just his purpose. All things work to good for those that love God and are called to his purpose. It's pretty simple. It's pretty deep at the same time. I don't know, uh, obviously, what everybody in this room has been through in, the, in your life. I don't know what it is that you think about yourself when you look in the mirror. I don't know if there's certain things that you have done or decisions that you have made that have made you decide that you're a certain type of person that God cannot use in a certain type of way or that have made you decide that calling is no longer legitimate or that anointing is no longer available or you are not worthy or able to do anything for the Lord because that's too lofty of an idea. But God has a simple message for you this morning. is that you are flawed. You are riddled with mistakes. It is easier for you to be wrong than it is for you to be right. And I have never left you. And I will never forsake you. And all things work to good for those that love God and are called to his purpose.
All have fallen short and all things work to good. Amen? Because He loves you. Because He loves you perfectly. Now think about all that we have said and then contemplate this for a second. God is love. You show me a man that loves perfectly, I'll show you a man that's never made a mistake. Who made you? Who made you? Okay. God is... God has never made a... Okay. So next time you look in the mirror and you're trying to figure out what's God's perfect will for my life, His perfect will is just that you love Him. You follow Him. Give your will back to Him. Allow Him to use you because He is love. Love never makes a mistake and He made you. Therefore, you make mistakes, but you are not a mistake. Does that make sense? I just really want to pound this deep into your spirit today. That all things work to good. Well, I've been through a divorce. It's going to work to good. Well, I was addicted to alcohol. It's going to work to good. Well, I was addicted to drugs. I'm right now trying to, trying to defeat pornography. I'm right now trying to defeat uh, whatever addiction. I'm right now trying to, uh, trying to maintain a relationship. I'm right now can't stop cussing people out. Can't stop kicking the dog. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's going on in my life. I hate everybody, blah, blah, blah. All things work to good. It's not about your mistakes. It's about your reaction to those mistakes. Hey, you made a mistake. You did something wrong. What are you going to do? Run from God or run to God? He's judging you based on those reactions. How do I know that for sure? Because it says when you get up to heaven, guess what happens? He opens up the book on your life. He looks at everything that you've done. And if you're following Christ, he sees all the good things and all of the sins are blotted out with the blood of the lamb. So he's reading faithful, generous, good, blot, 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 nice, blot, 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 father, blot, 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 gave to somebody, blot, blot, blot. It's all covered. He doesn't judge you based on a culmination of the mistakes that you made. He judges you based on your heart, which is set by the reaction that you have to those mistakes and other people's mistakes. And God is not done with you yet if you are still alive. So you are not currently a success. You are not currently a failure. You are currently a work in progress. And God is not done. 